This week on Life and Faith. I went into about six months of a sort of inner tantrum saying, I am not going to be a spiritual person. That's just wrong. I don't like that. And my friends were all saying, Heather, haven't you noticed? It's kind of like a marriage. You've got to promise to love, honour and obey first. But it's basic to the public sphere. I feel just a sense of wonder at it. Illogical and pathetic maybe, but pretty darn effective too, I would say. Welcome to Life and Faith from CPX. I'm Simon Smart. And I'm Natasha Moore. And in today's episode, Natasha speaks with a beloved Australian author, Heather Rose, about the book she sort of didn't mean to write, Nothing Bad Ever Happens Here, which turned out to be a spiritual memoir. Heather is the award-winning author of Museum of Modern Love and Bruni, among other novels. And she's someone who has had a lot of what we might call supernatural experiences in her life. Someone who doesn't identify with any specific religion, but who certainly believes there is more to life than what we can see. Yes, and you talked to her in this conversation about some of those quite intense experiences related to Buddhism and to Native American spirituality. We at CPX are especially interested in examining the spiritual but not religious designation and paying attention to what people mean by that. So this episode explores some of the frontiers of how humans relate to the supernatural. Yeah, and these are things that people just don't talk about very much, which is partly why we think having this conversation is so important, even if you do find some of the things that Heather describes confronting. But we don't want to give away too much here. We want everyone to have their own reaction to these stories. Yes, and these encounters started early for her, right? Yeah, there are actually some things that happened around a terrible family tragedy when she was 12 years old. Her older brother and her grandfather drowned in a boating accident. And a lot of the book is shaped by this just earth-shattering loss. Here's Heather describing some of her experiences around those events. The morning that it happened, I'd had a very powerful dream and I'd woken up thinking that something terrible was happening to my brother and I wanted to run into my parents' bedroom. But I was just turned 12 and I thought, they'll just say it's a dream I just have to leave it alone. But the day went on and then there was a knock at the door and I opened it because my dad had just gone out to the shop for a moment. It was school holidays and there was a policeman standing there and he asked me if I knew Byron Kent Rose and Leonard Keith Burgess and I said to him, yes, one is my brother and one is my grandfather. And... I asked him if he'd like to come in because we did that in those days. And he said no, he'd wait in the car. And I remember closing the door and turning around and my little sister, who's three years younger than me, was standing there and she said, what did he want? And I said, Byron and Grandad are dead. And she said, how do you know? And I knew because I'd had the dream. And... After that experience, both my dad, who's a devout Christian, a beautiful man, and my brother and I all experienced separately but didn't talk about it until years later, moments where my brother Byron visited each of us and appeared before us 
to reassure each of us in his own way that everything was okay. Interestingly, I mean, your whole life seems to have been punctuated by some fairly intense spiritual experiences. If we fast forward a little to like 1984, you're 19, 20 years old. Um, you head off to spend some time at a Buddhist monastery near the Laotian border. What drew you there? Well, you know, I start the memoir with a memory that's very vivid to me of me standing in the schoolyard. I'm six years old. I'm in a little green and white checked uniform that my mother used to make for us. She made all our uniforms for us. There were four of us. And I approach this tree and I stand under it and I look up into its branches and I say, here I am. Tell me what to do. Make use of me. My father, as I've said, is a Christian and we would go to church and there was definitely a sense of prayer from him, that prayer was an important part of his life. But my mother was a devoted agnostic, that totally believes that life is here and now and nothing, nothing else happens in this world, just what is straight in front of us. So I had that strange polarity, you know, that, that strange sense of these two extreme, quite relatively extreme views. I mean, I didn't think about them at the time being extreme, but they certainly held either ends of a spectrum. And I think after my brother's death and also seeing him, having him appear before me on two occasions and some other experiences that happened in my teenage years, I got very, very curious about the unseen. And part of the entry into that was being introduced to meditation um, when I was maybe 17 and and feeling that, oh, there's an access point here, there's something going on in this silence that is very interesting to me. And then a friend had connected me with a Buddhist monk in Thailand when I arrived in Bangkok, and I'd been on the road for many months by then. And I met with him at a monastery in Bangkok, and I studied with him for a couple of weeks, and then he suggested that I would really like to go out to a monastery on the Laotian border that had been set up for Western people to study. And so I took this crazy train trip of 12 hours overnight, not a word of Thai, only the instructions written in Thai on a piece of paper that the monk had written down for me, and turned up at this monastery and found myself in a period of time called the Rains Retreat in Thailand. And it's when the Buddhist monks all go home, the nuns and monks go home to their villages and return to the monasteries that they possibly first were in. The Rains Retreat at Wat Pananachat was a very intense period of time. The rules were little talking, little sleeping, little eating. So we had one meal a day and I found myself in sort of pretty much a 20-hour cycle each day of meditation, sitting meditation, walking meditation and chanting. Uh, it was beautiful. I loved it. I loved it so much I nearly, nearly became a nun. I thought very seriously about that. But again, in the wonder of the world, there was this moment where in a, uh, we, we were in silence, you know, for two, three months, um, complete silence. But on a Sunday, the head monk would allow several questions to be asked. We would gather in this particular room and he would allow a few questions to be asked and he would talk about Buddhist theology. And on this occasion, a nun said to him, how can you be sure that what we do here has any effect in the world? 
And he said this beautiful thing that our emotions are like winds on the lake. And so when we meditate and we create that calm that emanates from us as we meditate, it's as if we drop a stone in the lake and it ripples out and out and out. And of course, that ripples around the world. But I heard the words around the world and I thought, oh, and I suddenly remembered I was in a little forest. Beyond that were rice paddies. Beyond that was a little village. There was a train station. Oh, that's right. I caught a train from Bangkok. Oh, there's Bangkok. And I suddenly started going out into the world again. And my being spoke in this very powerful way and said, that's where I'm meant to be. I'm meant to be out in the world. There's things I have to do out there. And so I, I did, I left and went back out into the world and life went on. <laughs> I've never stopped loving that practice and knowing that even in the craziness of family life with three children and a business to run and a marriage to manage and all the, the responsibilities of being a woman in the world with parents and community, the sense that in the moment that is where the sacred is and remembering always to keep my awareness as much as possible in the now. Heather's book includes descriptions of her encounters with Indigenous spiritualities. We'll come to her participation in a Native American Sundance later on. But she also had this story to tell about her dad's faith. I'm so grateful to my parents for holding such differing views. I'm mm. so grateful to my dad for the generosity of his Christianity, for the beautiful way he lives his life with malice towards none and charity to all. He loves Abraham Lincoln's second um, inaugural speech and he doesn't keep a copybook. He is unfailingly available to his family and friends for deep and meaningful conversations. He's a generous, joyful person. And he's 89 and has lived through the most crazy amount of heart disease and heart operations. And here he is still alive. And I'll never forget once being in Melbourne, uh, I had just dropped him at Flinders Street Station and I was driving away. And I said, I thought to myself, dear God, please take care of him. And this voice, this very loud voice right beside me just said, I am. Wow. <laughs> and all, all through the ups and downs of life with his health, I thought, there it is, though. I just have to trust. What kinds of words do you use to describe these, you know, experiences and encounters that you've had? Do you use words like mystical or supernatural, devotion, spiritual discipline? Like, how do you think of what you're engaging in with these kinds of practices? I don't think I characterise them in any particular way, but I noticed that when I was writing the memoir and my publishers got a very long version of the memoir and they said to me, Heather, You've really got three memoirs here. One is about family and business and one is about, and cooking, yeah. One is about your travels and adventures and one is a spiritual memoir and we think you should focus on that. And I went into about six months of a sort of inner tantrum saying, I am not going to be a spiritual person. That's just wrong. I don't like that. And my friends were all saying, Heather, haven't you noticed? <laughs> but I think I thought, that spiritual meant 
that I would have to know something, that people would expect me to know things. And I, I'm an explorer just like everybody else. I don't know for sure. I, it's why the book in some ways is called Nothing Bad Ever Happens Here. It's really an ongoing consideration for me that maybe nothing bad ever happens here. But that in itself is a kind of spiritual pursuit. So I think I frame them as spiritual but my experience of writing the memoir and having to think about that word a lot in light of its characterization was that my sense of spirituality is to be curious, to not close my mind to ideas, to not let doctrine or ideology or outrage or, or some kind of credo determine my ideas about the world and to allow my ideas to constantly evolve and that's not easy as we get older because it's sort of nice to have some sense of certainty (laughs) (laughs) it's fascinating to me that your publisher really said actually the one we want you to write is the spiritual memoir because it feels kind of unexpected in you know a memoir by a beloved literary figure that this stuff is so prominent how have people responded to that? Have they found it illuminating? Have people found it weird? Do they want to disbelieve you? Well, I only get the really lovely letters, of course. Uh, I'm glad. <laughs> I, yes. I, thankfully, people do not write to me and say, you're a lunatic. Have you noticed? <laughs> A few men have said to me at book events that they were very concerned about the sun-dancing aspects. And a few people have said to me, did you think of that as self-harm? Which I didn't, of course. But it's interesting that it can be characterised like that by people. But overwhelmingly, and this has gone on now since the book came out in November, I get, if not one or two letters, five letters a day. I have received the most extraordinary number of letters messages from people on social media, messages through my publishers or my agent, messages through people who know someone who knows me. I have been overwhelmed and so touched by the stories people have shared with me, their stories about their own grief and their experiences with the dead and their experiences with spirituality and their experiences with the unseen and their love of life and their love of children and parenting and their experiences with chronic illness and it just has been the most I could never have anticipated the letters that I have received and they go on and on I I haven't checked this week yet but last week there were some extraordinary letters I can't respond to all of them you know it's I try I try really hard to respond to them but I had no idea that it would tap into something so powerful with people. I've read a statistic that 49% of Australians say they never have a spiritual conversation, a conversation about spiritual things. Would you agree that Australians are not really great at having these conversations? We think of ourselves as quite materialist, um, just what you see is what you get, or that's not your experience? I don't know about that because I would tend to embark on a conversation about the unexpected as often as possible with people. I'm not very interested in ordinary conversations. I like a good, rich conversation. 
And even with my most pragmatic friends, they will usually give over something that they wouldn't normally say, and they might even feel a little bit embarrassed by sharing it, but they want to share it. And I think that's what I also have experienced over and over again as I've travelled the world and talked to endless strangers and asked them, did they ever have an experience they couldn't explain? Did something happen to them that they really felt a presence of some sort, their own inner wisdom or, or some other sort of presence that helped them, saved them, you know? And, I mean, I would have asked that question many, many hundreds of times. There's been nobody who said no. Fascinating. Yeah, it is fascinating. And I mean, I think even my mum, if I was to ask her, might say something. I mean, I've tried and, and every now and again, she will have a sense that something happened and then she'll be right. And I think we underestimate the scope of our senses. I think we we're easily convinced that we only have five, where I think we probably have about nine. <laughs> this is Life and Faith from CPX, and Natasha is speaking with Heather Rose about spiritual experience. Now, it's easy to assume that the spiritual is not that important in people's lives, but surveys suggest otherwise. Just because people tick no religion on a census form, it doesn't mean they're necessarily atheists. One Pew Research Center survey in 2018 found that 72% of American nuns, that's those who say they have no religion, believe in God or a higher power. 46% talk to God regularly. And 40% say they experience a sense of spiritual peace and well-being at least once a week. Plenty of Australians don't talk about these things much. But that doesn't mean they're not a real and important part of people's lives. Back to the interview. You mentioned the Native American Sundance that you were involved with. Tell us a bit about that. What, what is that? How did it come about? That's another one of those. It's a big story. <laughs> it is a big story. I was uh, 26. I had a two-year-old son. I went to a sweat lodge weekend out in the forests in Victoria, had a very powerful experience in the sweat lodge. I'd never had a sweat lodge before. I didn't know anything about Native American spirituality. I had an experience I couldn't explain. And then after that, for about two weeks, I had the same dream over and over and over every night. I was in a pine forest, a sloping pine forest. There were fires, there were women beating, there was There was singing, there was drums. I was there, I could smell the smoke. I'd wake up and seriously feel as if I had just come out of a completely different landscape. And I went to speak to the person who had run the sweat lodge and I explained that I'd been having these repetitive dreams. And he said, you're being called to a Sundance because I was being given very specific instructions in these dreams about the things I needed to do. And those are preparation for a Sundance. So I bought a plane ticket and got my dad to come over and care for my little boy. And he also, I also had a, a carer for him and obviously his dad was there too. It was so hard to leave him. But I booked a plane ticket. I flew to San Francisco. I met with the person I'd been connected with. He and his girlfriend took 
great care of me. I bought a car. I drove out to Arizona to a sweat lodge weekend where I was put up on the hill, as they call it, a vision quest weekend, three days and three nights out in the wilds with no food and water, just a blanket and various other paraphernalia that are spiritual items that are required in that ceremony. Came back down, drove to Oregon, presented myself to the Sundance chief who was holding the Sundance. He was a very experienced Sundance chief and the dance was mostly Native American people. It just happened to be being held in Oregon that year. And we had a bit of a chat and he said, well, yes, you can dance, but you can dance only if you commit to coming back every year for four years. And that's going to be hard. It's going to take everything you've got and things you don't even know you have, but you can't fail. You must come back every year. And when a Native American Sundance chief says that to you, you know you can't fail. So I danced that year and then I went back every year for four years and I'd spend, you know, two, three months there. I took my little boy on two of those years, on the second year and the fourth year. And yes, the world has never been the same since. I hesitate to be, you know, all Western and prosaic about this but you know the physical intensity of what you did with all that is very confronting as well as the spiritual realities of it um like I kind of want to say like a lot of this seemed medically inadvisable (laughs) (laughs) absolutely doesn't it seem ridiculous (laughs) and yet you get stronger you get clearer the brain has to stop telling you you're going to die eventually and the body is extraordinary. When you think back to, you know, the explorers of the Antarctic and even the people who tried for the Northwest Passage, all those sort of adventurers, we were doing things that bodies do not now do very much. We're only just now again embracing cold water swimming. We, we've got soft. Yeah? And it's fascinating to me. I love that I know my body is something that can do so much more than many people think is possible. And because I've had this chronic illness um, all my life, that has been amazing for teaching me endurance, mental endurance through those very, very hard periods where I haven't been able to walk. The sun dancing, yes, it's a dance of deprivation, you know, no, no eating, no drinking, four days without food and water, and you're dancing from sun up to sundown in the heat of summer. It is grueling but there is something about surrendering into a ritual and I think anyone who has been in a ritual and sometimes those rituals can be in a church they can be in a temple they can they can be in a forest they you know ritual itself is a very powerful thing to create and so when we embark on a journey within the context of a ritual we are held by the people who are running that ritual the history of that ritual the community that holds the people within that ritual it's not just me with no food and no water under the sun it's me in in that instance you know 75 sundance brothers and sisters everything that had gone into the creation of that ceremony over the weeks and months and and especially the four days we'd all been preparing the history of that dance, the history of the Lakota people, 
the purpose that we all had in our hearts for each of our individual dances, the sense that this dance is for the well-being of the world, for our community, for our people, for our families, for healing. All of that is a powerful wave through that entire ritual. So it may seem grueling in the individual, but there is something so much bigger going on that helped me really understand how connected we are with nature and how nature speaks to us all the time. And so in a way, yes, I had to go through extreme hardship, physical hardship to have these, you know, in the, in the monastery and sun dancing, but I wouldn't know what I know without those things. And I think establishing small rituals in life, be it lighting candles at the dinner table or when I go writing, I always light a candle in my writing room. Any little rituals help us to remember the, the sacredness of life and also our connection with each other and with this world that we have the privilege to be in for a brief period of time. I know you've said that you don't really kind of truck with creeds and things, but having had all these experiences, rituals and interactions, are there things that you therefore believe about reality? Like what are your convictions about what reality is like? I'm not sure what reality is. I mean, there's many definitions we could explore in that regard. I do know that what is important to me is how I feel and how my feeling world occurs to me. So, you know, one of the things I think that I've learned is if I choose to emanate from joy and gratitude, my life goes much better than if I was to choose to operate out of shame and anger. I love reminding myself regularly to consider where my energetic level is and am I really making sure that I'm remembering to be joyful, remembering to be grateful. And that's been a practice for such a long time now that it's a lovely wave that I ride and it's given me so much flow in life to use a a pretty useful term when it comes to creativity, but also in human interactions. So I'm not sure what I know, and I don't think that reality is anything like as limited as we have framed it. But it's useful because if we didn't have a sense of reality, it might be quite disconcerting to a lot of people, especially the 51% who don't think there's anything (laughs) else going on. That's a lot of slightly panicked people if, you know, <laughs> if the world started to do unexpected things. The title of your book is Nothing Bad Ever Happens Here. What do you mean? That comes towards the end of the book when I return to the place that my brother and grandfather died for the first time. And I looked really hard and I used all my senses and it I did my own version of a ceremony, really, at that place, and I recount that in the memoir. But the overwhelming feeling I got that day was that, yes, they died. Yes, it was awful. Yes, it was excruciating for my parents, excruciating for my siblings, excruciating for me. It broke our family. Uh, It caused untold ripples 
in all sorts of lives. And yet, when I was there all those years later, I couldn't feel that there was anything wrong. What I felt was that somehow or other, beyond my very limited understanding of reality, as we've just discussed, there was a sense that there was a kind of rightness to it all, that yes, it had caused all of us to have lives that were coloured by that. We'd carried this grief, we'd carried the legacy of this event. I have carried it, but it has given me so many gifts. And I think if we're willing to open our hearts to that, that the really hard things are an invitation to keep opening our hearts and to keep finding the love within ourselves, for ourselves, for each other, then maybe nothing bad ever happens here. Heather's memoir, while primarily a story of spiritual seeking, covers a lot of other ground as well, about motherhood and the natural world, especially the forests of Tasmania, her home. She also writes very movingly about her experience of chronic pain. Uh, She was diagnosed in her 20s with a condition called ankylosing spondylitis and told that she would be in a wheelchair by the time she was 30. Around 20% of Australians suffer from chronic pain, so I didn't want to let Heather go without asking her if she had something to share with her fellow sufferers. You have my absolute sympathy. I completely understand your pain. It's unfathomable how painful life can be physically. And on a daily basis, the grind of pain, the compelling nature of pain, the alarm bell that pain is constantly ringing in the body that makes it hard to concentrate, makes it hard to be gentle, makes it hard to be generous. It's truly awful to live with chronic pain. And we have it for all sorts of reasons and all sorts of conditions. And so many people now in this world live with chronic pain, some kind of chronic illness that is an invitation to limit our lives or it's an invitation to see what else is possible, I think. And my experience of chronic pain is only mine and everyone has to go on their own journey with this. But I found that over time, through the depths of despair, through feeling that my family would be better off without me, through the humiliation of not being able to move my body in ways that I wanted to move it, um, of having to be on walking sticks, of, of living in a world that's not designed so much for people with physical disability, I realised that I could constantly rail against that and feel its unjustness and say, why me, why me, and play the victim. Or I could say, this is given to me. What can it teach me? What can I learn? And so for me, that's where I've learned that if I'm joyful, I feel less pain. And I've made that a practice. It's almost as if the more I meditate and elevate my emotions into joy, the less I can feel the pain. And that's been a lifelong journey and I'm nearly 60. It isn't that the pain isn't there. It's just that my joy for life overrides it. (music) 
You've been listening to Life and Faith from the Centre for Public Christianity with me, Simon Smart, and Natasha Moore. And our thanks today to Heather Rose for sharing so personally about her spiritual journey. Heather's memoir is called Nothing Bad Ever Happens Here. I personally found it a very intense and absolutely fascinating read from someone whose experience of the supernatural has been really different to my own. Please do leave us a rating or review. Share this with people you think might enjoy it and email us at podcast at publicchristianity.org. We'd love to hear from you. And finally, thanks to our producer, the mysterious Alan Douthwaite. Next week. They'd kind of been given instructions and their mission was to find and kill all Tamil boys and men. They heard my crying and I was just a few months old and didn't know any better. So I was crying. My dad was kind of holding my mouth to try and block the noise, but they heard me and so they came out the back and then they just kind of banged away at this old door. <laughs>